Hello and welcome to the Anima Cafe podcast, a chance to hear the recording of our latest cafe, sharpening your skills around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Enjoy. Uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Shaquille Chaudhry. I'm the co-founder of Anima Leadership. My pronouns are he and him. Today's theme, a uh, very important theme, is, um, is really looking at uh, uh, the age of discord that we are in. And it's a post-election debrief. And it's a, it's a, it's a complicated time. And this builds on the pre-session uh, that we did, the pre-election session. And uh, in the pre-election session, um, we talked about rising authoritarianism and fascism. And so I just want to put that into context because the context setting um, for this moment of, of post-election has everything to do with not just the election, but things that came well before. And I am joined with uh, two uh, uh, really important people uh, who have a great deal of influence um, in, um, uh, in their specific spheres and in the public sphere. And um, uh, the first is uh, Judy Rebick who is um, uh, really, uh, if, if, there are, um, if there are folks who are um, icons in the, in the Canadian um, uh, women's rights movement, civil rights movement, it's Judy. Uh, she is a, um, uh, an author of many, many books. And the last one, uh, the most recent one that came out, Heroes in My Head, is just a must read. Um, it is this deep exploration of, of politics but also of the personal. Um, it also gives a arc of, uh, uh, a fabulous arc of uh, Canadian um, civil rights history of Canada as well. And um, the other person that I'm uh, just honored to, to introduce today is Parker Johnson. Parker Johnson has worked um, in many contexts, uh, based um, originally in, in the US, um, uh, worked in higher education, has worked in the public sector, has been living and working in the Canadian context. Um, for the last 20 years as someone uh, who's done so much work in the, in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and delighted you could be here as well. Just uh, delighted to be here, and thanks, so thanks for inviting me, and also with Parker, who I love and is a wonderful person, just a wonderful person. Thank you both. I'm glad that we're here and glad to be here with others who are similarly interested in these uh, interest in these challenging and urgent times. Um, this conversation and these conversations uh, continue to be um, top of mind. So, so thank you for this. What I want to start with is is first of all acknowledging that we are um, today is November 11th. It is Remembrance Day. And on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918 was the end of World War One, and it was supposed to be the end. Uh, it was be the war that ended all wars because of its incredible human loss and all that. Um, however, um, after World War One came World War Two. The conditions were set. The conditions were set um, where uh, there was incredible um, desperation, income inequality, and people were looking for help, looking for a savior. And, and that's kind of where we led, you know, Mussolini, Hitler, and these kind of things. Um, this, the level of desperation, why that's important today is that um, we're also at desperate times today. And, and that's not hyperbole. And it's not just because of Trump. 
according to, to Peter Turchin, who is an evolutionary biologist who's done some, a lot of work with data, um, him and his team uh, 20 years ago, um, I shared this last time, um, uh, predicted that we would, uh, that the U.S. and many European countries would be um, at peak violence um, or getting close to peak violence by two, 2020. And what they based that on was really looking at historical examples of, of where, uh, what was a driver behind societies hitting uh, revolution, um, hitting um, civil war. And what they found was a very particular pattern and that was around income inequality. And that's kind of the state of things that we've, we've been in is that uh, the last 40 years has been of neoliberal um, uh, economic policies, which has massively um, uh, increased the, uh, the gap between haves and have nots, right? Uh, multimillionaires and billionaires have, there are three, four, five times as many uh, multimillionaires and billionaires than there were 40 years ago. And at the same time, um, uh, average wages have basically stagnated, stayed at the same level with, per, per, with um, precarious work and these kinds of things. COVID-19 is in the thick of this. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. That also adds the, to, the, to the desperation. The polarization and political division is also tied to over 50 years of the Republican Party's Southern strategy to court white voters. And it's a, it's a shrinking, shrinking demographic and, and the desperation um, uh, of, of trying to stay in politics has been part of the, the Republican Party's um, trajectory. Um, and that's been coupled with um, gun rights and ownership. There's more um, guns than people in the United States. And uh, many people would argue that where we are today is a part of um, uh, the, uh, an unfinished aspect of the US Civil War and also tied to the history of slavery. So the context we are in is not just the moment of an election, but we got here um, uh, because of all the things that came before. Basically, Trump was unelectable in previous time periods. He is a symptom of the problem. He's not the problem. He's just the cancerous, ugly part of the problem. Um, and what we talked about last time at the last session was really um, um, elements of rising fascism and what are the symptoms and signals of rising fascism. And according to the U.S. Uh, Holocaust Museum, there's a lot of, a lot of these. There's, they, uh, they outlined 14 uh, different signs powerful nationalism, disdain for human rights, um, identification of enemies as unifying cause, outsiders as the enemies, um, supremacy of military and police might, rampant sexism, controlling um, mass media, obsession with national um, security, uh, religion and government being intertwined, corporate power, um, protected labor, labor power suppressed, disdain for intellectuals and the arts. Um, obsession with crime and punishment, rampant cronyism and corruption, fraudulent elections. You can be checking off in your own head what milestones um, has already been hit in the U.S. and the implications of that globally. Um, so the election of, uh, of um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris um, uh, is, is really a big win. And in the context that we are in, it's also perhaps a momentary respite, okay? Um, and I say that because, you know, in, in the words of um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, following the election, I felt like this captured it really for me, is that we just aren't in a free fall to hell anymore at this moment. But what's underneath is that uh, we've already seen that even the transition 
is really challenging because the Republican leadership is once again backing Trump, even though everybody else and their dog is like, of course, acknowledge that Joe Biden has won, but Trump hasn't and his Republican allies have not. So this is, this is the threat to democracy. This is unprecedented, right? This has not happened in, in historical context before. And it's, this is why uh, these are all elements of, of rising authoritarianism and fascism. And it's also speaking to the rot that's, that, that's at place in, um, in the U.S. Um, um, political system. Now, having said that, having said that, this is also, um, as Judy um, reminded me as we were talking, this is also a moment where we're pivoting and there are opportunities here. There are opportunities here today because everything is unstable, which means it can go bad or it can go really well. And so the opportunities here um, are that there are justice opportunities that just weren't here five years ago or even three years ago, right? I mean, we are at an inflection point on anti-Black racism in organizations and society. There's just a different, a different conversation that's happening uh, since the George Floyd murder and the, and the, the protests that, that have mobilized people. Um, for example, defund the police, which was a marginal conversation within justice movements within a couple of weeks suddenly was a public conversation. I mean, that's, that's a different ship. No one could have predicted that. Um, we've in the Canadian context have been at an inflection point on anti-indigenous racism since truth and reconciliation, which is a few years back. Okay. Um, also a few years back, um, hashtag me too shifted the conversation about gender rights. Right. Um, and, um, at least places like in the Canadian context, um, we were talking about um, uh, universal basic income. And that's a lived reality. For me. We've been living through this since the pandemic. Like we couldn't have predicted that. This is a legitimate conversation now. Um, and then on a really micro level in my neighborhood and cities like Toronto, we have bike lanes where we didn't have them before. <laughs> We've got like street cafes. So I talked about this last time. I want to hit these again because because amongst all of the chaos that's out there, there's also opportunities. So that's the context setting that we are in. And now I would like to bring in um, Judy and Parker. And um, what I'd like to do is invite you and I have two simple questions. What are you hopeful about? What gives you, what, what's catching your attention? What, what do you think is positive in this moment? And then what are your areas of concern? Judy, um, why don't you start us off? I have to say the night of the election on the 3rd of November, I felt dread. I felt more, and I'd never felt dread in relation to politics before. So I think I, I pay attention to that because I have a good gut for politics. Um, but then, you know, Biden won and I have to say, I'm not, you know, I can't be happy Biden won because Biden is an imperialist, you know, he's a neoliberal. There's nothing about Biden other than the fact that he is relatively sane and he's not a Nazi that I find appealing, right? You know, I was happy for Kamala to win because of what it means and, you know, the stunning, the stunning idea that there's never been a woman in the executive of, in the United States, let alone a woman of color. There's never been a woman. Like, you know, if you want to understand the power of patriarchy, you know, the women's move, the, this phase of the women's movement started 50 years ago, and this is the first woman in the executive branch in the United States, and we're no better in Canada. We had a woman prime minister for five minutes, which was Kim Campbell, you know, what didn't get elected, right? Which, for which I'm glad, but, you know, that's a different story. So, 
But where I started to feel hopeful was the day after it was announced that Biden and Harris won. And that was the celebrations in the street. They were unprecedented and, and they were uh, like the celebrations you see in a country that's had a fascist dictatorship defeated. I've never seen celebrations like that. Completely or almost completely spontaneous celebrations. Um, dancing in the, literally dancing in the streets because of, that didn't even happen when Obama was elected. There were celebrations, but they were organized. They were, you know, in, they were rallies, that kind of thing. But people were literally dancing in the street to celebrate. And I think they were celebrating the defeat of Trump more than anything. And that gave me a lot of hope. So why did, and that gave me a lot of hope because just as I think the Black Lives Matter uprising gave me a lot of hope. And that's where we see that in a moment like this, everything can change. And that means they can change for the better too. And right now, the reality is, if the Democrats don't take significant action to improve the lives of working class and poor Americans, whatever their race is, they're, they're, they're not going to win the next election. They'll find somebody probably smarter than Trump and more effective than Trump and less lazy than Trump um, and ha have a really effective fascist, neo-fascist leader. The Republicans will, I think. Because um, I think they're, they're, I don't, I think they're doomed. Like the support, the support for Trump in this moment when, you know, I don't know how many people understand this about the US of A, but they really believe their own mythology. They really, really believe in it. And they believe they're a they are a beacon for democracy in the world. I mean, this kind of maneuver that Trump's trying now with uh, um, refusing to recognize the election, you know, this just happened in Bolivia with the full support. I mean, not just happened, but this happened a few months ago in Bolivia with the full support of the US government. It happened in Venezuela, where, Pete, where, the, where the, you create chaos around an election and, um, and bring in a, a fascist government. And the US has supported this kind of coup everywhere in Latin America. So it's not unusual that they would do that, but it's unusual they would do that in their own country. And for the Republicans to support Trump in this moment, no matter how afraid they are of being reelected, is really a profound break a profound break from that, um, that, support, that supportive mythology of, of, of what the United States stands for. And one person, you know, the, the democratic vote being central to that. So, so the hope that I have is the mobilization of the people, the people in the streets and the incredible organizing that goes on on the ground, but most of which I don't know, the only way I know about is by listening to uh, American webinars but there's phenomenal organizing and we're having progressive people being elected at every level, like, and getting rid of fascist sheriffs, all this kind of stuff has happened that we're not getting news about, but I'm hearing, you know, on social media. So I'm very, I'm very excited about that. Um, and I think that uh, there's real, there's a one, wonderful discussions going on um, about the need to push Biden and Harris to really bring in progressive uh, policies. And this is not a question of, you know, the divisions in the Democratic Party or whatever. It's a question that if they don't, 
if the Democrats continue business as usual, just support the corporations and do this in the, in the guise of reaching out to the Republicans, um, it'll, it'll get worse. It'll get worse. So the only way to make it better is to do progressive things. That's the reality. And that's why um, I think there's an opportunity now, a big opportunity, because you have, not only do you have a mobilized progressive movement around anti-Black racism, and I think it goes well beyond that, uh, and, but you also have a very sophisticated left inside the Democratic Party. And this is very rare. Uh, I think it's rare. Um, you know, AOC is just a genius. I, she never puts a foot wrong. I don't know how she knows. She's like just a, a natural born politician. I don't know how she does it. But, um, and, and the people around her, the squad, and now there's more people, and they're connected to the movements, which is also very rare. I mean, we had that with the NDP for about five minutes with Sven Robinson and Libby Davis and the New Politics Initiative. Any of you that might see a couple of people shaking heads. And when we had that uh, coordination between the movements outside and the politicians inside the party, you can make real change. I mean, we didn't succeed, but we came pretty close. So that makes me optimistic as well. That's a great start, um, Judy. And you're, you're absolutely right. The, the mobilization, the credit that's been given to Stacey Abrams in, uh, in Georgia and the grassroots campaigning that happened there um, to mobilize and, and get black voters registered, phenomenal. Um, in Arizona, um, Latino voters um, um, uh, really coming out and again, understaffed, underfunded, and yet all deep grassroots organizing. So we're going to come back to the idea of mobilization and how, how that can happen. Parker, I'd love to, to, uh, to shift yeah. over to you. Yeah, um, I think uh, particularly um, just echoing a lot of what Judy said, but also, and also, you know, having been in Canada, as you mentioned, for the last 20 years, um, what also buoys me is the connection here too with, you know, the ongoing struggles with, with Soatun, Idle No More, BLM, Missing Murdered Indigenous Women, you know, struggles around housing, struggles around, um, you know, and, and COVID here in Canada is popping up. Um, what um, also keeps me, I guess, positive focusing back on the U.S., is not only the the BLM struggles and, as Judy mentioned, the removal of DAs and and police chiefs who have been repressive and violent and 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 people's ongoing challenge to them, but also a lot of the community organizing that's been happening. You know, to where people are having to help each other in the absence of any kind of uh, federal support and cobbling together their efforts to get their states to take responsibility for the welfare of the people that the federal government has abandoned. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really, I am, I am inspired by a lot of what's happening there. I do want to shift a little bit for a moment to, um, and this is uh, something that, that I'm heartened by, but also concerned about. And that is really uh, the issue around coalition building. And part of the, the concern I think that people have right now with, with Trump stance um, and the Republicans supporting him, as you mentioned, is that there's also these people saying, you know, stop the count, redo the count, all this sort of stuff to try to 
help Trump and all this sort of stuff. What, um, what has me concerned is about demonizing Trump and um, his supporters and so on and sort of inflaming and escalating that, you know, um, I don't, while I have, I think what Trump has been doing and the Republicans have been doing is reprehensible. Um, I also uh, don't think that um, abandoning uh, the people that supported him as lost or as idiots or, you know, all of the, all of the ways in which people are oftentimes demonizing. I think that we have to figure out ways to build some connections across these, across these differences so that these fissures are not used to uh, further exacerbate and, and fuel the fascist dissent uh, that we have momentarily stopped the freefall of. Um, I do think that we have an obligation uh, not to hunker down, but to, but to open up and to move forward. Um, because there are urgent issues around COVID, there are urgent issues around food security, there are urgent issues around housing. Um, there are, I mean, people right now in terms of rent, you know, that, that's some serious stuff that's happening. Um, and, you know, the, the states can't do it all themselves. Um, so I'm really glad to see all the activists, but I, I think that it's, it's vitally important um, not to be fueled, and um, I'm I'm really pleased with the way in which activists and community folks have been responding to this um, in general by not um, simply casting off half of the population as as a lost cause or having them cast us off as a lost cause, um, and I'm hoping that Biden can bring folks together. My criticisms of Biden, I, I hold those in abeyance because, as uh, Naomi Klein said, he's the food equivalent of mayonnaise in terms of, you know, uh, but and at the same time, I am, um, you know, hopeful, uh, you know, that we can push the, the Democrats to be more progressive, to lean more towards um, what's happening with, uh, with AOC and Presley and, and all of the other folks. But the other thing is that we haven't been talking about is that, you know, progressive Democrats have been getting elected. You know, we've been seeing more people of color, more women, uh, more trans and non-binary folk, more, you know, so the progressive aspect of the Democratic Party is, is still alive and it is growing. So the old guard, which AOC and the, and her interview in the New York Times said, look, um, we either need to be relevant or we will be on the scrap heap. And so because we have a bicameral system in the U.S., a two, you know, we got these two parties, which to me are oftentimes light gray and dark gray, different levels of commitment to neoliberalism and capitalism, different levels of commitment to patriarchy, colonialism, sexism, racism, ableism, and all the things that continue to be the brush fire of the ongoing pandemic that pervades the U.S., its history, and its inability to reckon with its history, as Eddie Gaud Jr. talked about. If we do not reckon with this, we are doomed to continue to repeat this cycle over and over again, because Black folk have been dealing with this bullshit, and, pe and poor people and working folks have been dealing with this bullshit for so long. Um, everybody has, but in particular, the marginalized populations are being so heavily impacted. So we need to continue to, um, 
to do this work, um, need to continue to connect and um, not be distracted, uh, you know, because Trump's in the White House, but he got in there and is staying in there because, as people have said, he's got Republican Congress folks who are ready to burn it down, put, um, you know, a more, a more conservative bench in the um, Supreme Court. And there are people who are pushing, saying, okay, she's there. We can't get rid of her. Let's expand the court. Okay. Um, we've got this vote with the Electoral College. We know it's a racist institution, a classist institution. We need to figure out a way to get rid of that. I mean, there are things that need to happen so that we don't find ourselves in this situation again. Mm -hmm. That's me. Thanks, Parker. So much in that. Um, uh, Judy, uh, I just want to just leap bring it back to you. Uh, anything you want to respond to what, you're, what you heard from Parker? Anything you want to build on? Um, yeah, I, I think the thing about the Supreme Court is kind of interesting because I think if they're smart, the Supreme Court will not accept the challenge to the, um, the Health Act, the Obamacare Act. Um, they'll reject it because what they really care about, like Roe v. Wade and other things, um, they know that if they reject Obamacare, uh, Biden will just bring it in again. And then they'll be uh, disciplined, like either by having to put another person on the court. So, and since they're pretty smart people, I assume they're not gonna, they're gonna reject that challenge to Obamacare um, so that they can live another day and get to issues that are more important to them. I may be wrong about that, but that's my guess about that. Um, on the other hand, I am not so sanguine about what's happening um, in terms of the possibility of a soft coup. I'm not saying it's gonna happen, but I think it's possible. It's within the, and this is something that, you know, yesterday I was watching uh, CNN and they had a former uh, defense minister on and they're talking about how Trump is firing all the heads of the defense department and he's think and maybe the head of the security service right now if that was happening in any other country then a northern you know uh, you know than the united states or canada we would assume that he was planning a coup any other country right and we just assume oh it can't happen in the united states and i hope that that's true but i still think we have to consider it as a possibility. So I put that aside, but I think that the mainstream media in the United States not even looking at that as a possibility. And I think it is a possibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's definitely something that's, yeah. that's around the theme of authoritarianism is that um, people look at that and um, most of what's been happening for the last few years, and I've also been guilty of it, is people going, oh my God, I can't believe he did that. Oh my God, I can't believe he did that without actually looking at it and saying, well, when you actually fire people or push them out and then install your cronies at the top, that's a classic move of stacking the deck that, that authoritarians do. And so a soft coup, because um, someone asked, is like, what's a soft coup? A soft coup would basically be rather than just like military rolling up and taking over something, which would be like a obvious hard coup. Soft coup is kind of using the system to basically break down enough of the institutions um, to delegitimize de and keep yourself in power, potentially perpetually. Now, I, I agree with Judy. He's not quite smart enough to do that, but he has on his way out the door, shit is going to get broken. 
right? Like it's going to, and, and, and the level and with the Republicans backing him, it, it makes it, it makes it challenging. Right. Um, what I, what I want to do though, is I heard both of you talk about coalition building and Judy, you and I talked about this before and Parker, you mentioned this, you mentioned this now too. And I'd like mm -hmm. to just talk about what that looks like. Cause uh, what I want to do is I want to remind us, um, cause I want to shift us towards like, what are the things we can do? Recognizing that we've got a wide group of people that are part of the Anima Cafe. We've got folks who are, who are um, um, mostly based in organizations, right? We've got um, uh, social change makers of all different stripes here. We've got people um, who are community activists and doing grassroots mobilizing as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've got a range of people, but a lot of our people are also inside organizations. So I, I would love for us to think about what can we do in our community life? And what can we also think about doing from the micro to the macro in our organizational life? So whatever you feel called to address in that, um, mm -hmm. I'd love to just get open that conversation so we can move also towards what are the kind of things that we can address? What are the kind of things that we can do? Well, first of all, I think we have to be prepared to make broad coalitions. You know, Cornell West calls it an anti-fascist united front, which is an old phrase that comes from the Second World War. Um, and I just want to point out after the First World War, it's not only that fascism emerged, but also communism emerged. There was a socialist revolution. It didn't turn out so well. It didn't turn out the way we hoped. But both things happened. I mean, the Russian Revolution was right after the First World War, right? So just wanted to... <laughs> It just came to me at uh, that point. But anyway, um, so in terms of coalition building, I think that the last, because there hasn't been really mass movements that sustained for any length of time until now, um, over the last couple of, couple of um, the last 20 years, I guess, um, I think there's been a tendency for people to get uh, much more intellectual in their, uh, discussions about politics and much more um, purist, you know? So I say in my generation, we were sectarian. Like I'm right and you're wrong. We knew exactly how social change was gonna happen. We were wrong about that, but we were absolutely sure that we were right. And that went on for 20 years against all evidence, you know? <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about socialist revolution now in Canada and the United States, okay? So, um, but this, the last couple of generations, it's more like, uh, I'm right and you're a bad person. So if you disagree with someone on, a, on an important issue, and I'm not saying this is on trivial issues, on important issues, they write them off. They shouldn't be, be no, I'm not, the no platforming is for in extreme cases, but there's a kind of no platforming we have even in our own organizations. People stop talking to you, people stop listening to you. Um, and, you know, people don't want you included if they're having a discussion, you know, that kind of thing. We all know what happened. That's very subtle. And that's what we have to stop. I'd love, I'd love for you to, to talk about that because I think, I, I, okay. I think it, many of us would benefit from, from an example of, of, where, of what you're talking about. Um, okay. So in the women's in 1970, when, you know, we had women, married women had no rights in 1970 in Canada, or 1968, let's say, because 69 was the omnibus bill. You couldn't get, couldn't sign for property, you couldn't get a credit card, and I can go on and on, okay? Marital rape was legal, etc. So what happened was a woman named Laura Sabia, who was a conservative alderman in Toronto, that's what we called them then, councillors now, but aldermen, 
Um, she said to uh, Prime Minister Pearson that if you, if you, we want a Royal Commission on the Status of Women, and if you don't do it, I'm going to bring two million women to march on Ottawa. She said later that she, she could have got 200, it would have been a lot. But there was the beginnings of feminist activism then, 1668, I think that was. And, um, and Pearson agreed to a Royal Commission on the Status of Women. And this Royal Commission went across the country and, um, and 350, and had 350 presentations. And it was shocking to everyone. You know, in a way it was like the, the change in consciousness was almost like it was with the Black Lives Matter uprising. That is, you know, suddenly everybody's thinking, oh, the police aren't good guys, the police are bad guys, you know? Well, it was like that around women. Wow, women are really facing a lot of problems, a lot of discrimination. It was like suddenly people became aware. And the, Lib and the Liberal Party, their idea was to um, have, a, have a, uh, a, a government body that would take care of, you know, a minister that would take care of, and, a, and an organization that would take care of the status of women. The Conservatives, like Laura Sabia, thought, no, what we need is an independent women's organization. And then there were a bunch of people, young people like me, young radical, and we couldn't stand these women. Like we hated their politics, we hated them. They represented everything we disagreed with. They wanted equal rights, but they, you know, Laura Sabia would say things, oh, and we can't, we can't judge women who put their child in daycare, you know? Because some of them have to, you know, like that. That's how she talked, right? Like we couldn't stand them, but, the labor women uh, who were older than us, the trade union women, convinced us that we had to make an alliance with conservative women in order to have an autonomous women's organization, national women's organization that would be funded by the government, right? But it would be independent. And so we made that alliance. And as a result, we got the National Action Committee on the Status of Women, which arguably was one of the reasons that the Canadian women's movement won as much as we won, which is much more than almost anywhere else in the world on legal grounds. Like we won the charter, we got, you know, all of that. So, and, and it happened again in the pro-choice struggle where we made alliances with, we used to call them the Rosedale ladies, you know, rich women who were pro-choice. So we didn't like anything else about their politics, but we needed the money for the court cases, right? And so we made an alliance with them. It's not that we agreed with them anymore. But we worked with them. And I think that that ability to work together has been, even if we disagree, has been uh, eroded by the lack of movement. And I'm, I'm optimistic that the Black Lives Matter movement is less like that, much more like when I listen to the Americans talk, they talk about the slide into abolition, for example, to understand that those people who support abolition didn't just suddenly support abolition of prisons and police. They slid into it. They, over time, through their own experience and through the battle, learned. And we have to understand that people slide into a different position. Now, I'm not saying you make, you know, alliances with people who voted for Trump, but it's very easy in a, let's say, a tenants fight where you're, where you're allying against evictions, right? But you can ally with people who've, who supported Trump, right? You're both against evictions. And in that moment, you can do that, right? And so that's one way, but the other way is to start to think about, and this is something, um, uh, I, okay, I forget everybody's name, but Kiange, her last name, I yeah. forget. Mm -hmm. 
okay, Kiange, who wrote the book from Black Lives, from Black Liberation to Black Lives Matter, she's talking about how we have to bring all the movements together, right? So that, you know, the, the feminist movement, the anti-racist, the anti-black racism movement, bring the, the environmental movement, we have to find ways to coordinate what we're doing and support each other. And I think that's very, very wise. And I think it may be more possible in Canada than it is in the United States because we're smaller and we all know, mostly all know each other, right? So, yeah. Great. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Judy. Really important. Yeah. Parker, over to you. Really. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything G said. I think um, that the alliances and also, you know, people, um, I think particularly also men being able to let go of some of the patriarchal assumptions around who leads movements also. You know, women have been doing this work, you know, and so, you know, when people are pushing, for example, um, to have uh, black women um, in leadership roles, it's because black women have been doing the work. And it's really vital that uh, people acknowledge that and understand that and lift folks up. So when you talk about Stacey Abrams, she is working hard now to ensure that Georgia does not go down the same hole that it went down when um, the then um the uh, head of district attorney um had uh became the governor because of all kinds of chicanery that was done to prevent people from voting and disfranchise she said okay we got to do this better so her coalition building and mobilization uh, wasn't only to get black voters uh, mobilized but to get all voters mobilized against um what was happening um in the state of georgia and so and pushing for a um, white person who's running for, for Senate, um, who's a Democrat. Um, and really people are working hard around this. So coalitions are happening as people are working to support folks. And, you know, uh, we look at Biden and we, you know, we look also at Kamala Harris and certainly there are strengths and weaknesses of these folks, but I don't think certainly there that we wanna raise the bar uh, higher for a black woman than we've lowered it for these white men, you know? And so, right. you know, people right. need to be clear and careful about the way in which misogyny and misogynoir shows up in the conversation. It doesn't mean we can't have criticism of folks, but we need to do this um, responsibly and respectfully, but, and also be able to work across, across these forums. So when, you know, I'm on, on Facebook with folks and, you know, people are uh, getting upset with AOC. I'm like, you can't get upset with AOC. AOC is really committed to making sure that things are moving forward here. I do think that underlying some of this is, uh, you know, sexism and patriarchy pushing back also against women leadership. Um, we aren't talking about it, but I do think that that, that is something that men, cis men, um, gay men, and, 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 and so on, all men need to um, kind of come, come to terms with. Um, the other thing for me is, um, you know, as someone as a you know someone who came to Canada and is an uninvited guest on these unceded and stolen lands, there is an obligation to work also with the Indigenous peoples. Um, and so, when we talk about coalitions, uh, that people are pushing for the whole conversation around land back here in Canada. Nobody, people don't want to talk about it, but this whole TRC thing and all of the challenges where people do it when it's convenient, but not when it's challenging, need to be able to support um, indigenous women who are seeking leadership roles. So being able to get behind folks 
and not just have the Nathan Collins come in and say, you know, I, I get this job because I'm a good old boy and I'm entitled to this um, because that sort of white male entitlement is being challenged on a regular basis and people need to step the heck back, you know, and be able to say, you know what, we need to also work here and support folks who might not fit what we have traditionally assumed to be leaders. And so I, I think that when we start about building these coalitions, we also need to start moving what have historically been seen as the margins and pushing that, pushing those folks to the center. That's right. And so, you know, um, and, and that really does require some collective um, uh, commitment around these things, you know? And so, yeah, I, I look at, uh, you know, what's been happening locally myself too um, with all these various uh, efforts to respond to um, community needs. So different communities um, coming together, support each other. So locally here in Vancouver, um, particularly when BLM stuff was uh, really high in the aftermath of the uh, murder execution of George Floyd, um, there were efforts on the part of folks to raise funds for organizations that were supporting black folks. Black people are 1% of the population in BC because of the racist white supremacist way in which Canada was formed and continues to maintain itself. It's not happenstance that we're just 1% of the population here. Um, and so our inability to deal with the anti-black racism that is the legacy and the enduring practice in this country that, you know, a number of people, whether we're talking about Sandy Hudson, whether we're talking about the uh, recent <clears throat> um, book by... Um, the Skin We're In? The Skin We're In. Thank you. Desmond Cole. You know, so these things that are true for Canada, you know, um, there are efforts in particular with coalition between Indigenous and Black folks here. Um, and, and, and I think also more broadly with, with marginalized communities. And so when that was happening, um, Jewish folk here locally started doing food hampers for uh, BLM. I mean, there are ways in which people are trying to show up for each other. Um, there are ways in which we're always doing that with missing and murdered indigenous women. You know, there are broad coalitions of folks that need to show up for each other. We can't just show up for the narrowly defined framework of this is my issue, that's your issue exactly what judy's talking about we cannot do that men need to show up for missing and murdered indigenous women that's that's we need to show up could you take a minute also to go really to the micro for a moment things that you're doing yeah it's working with the organizations who have employee resource groups that are trying to particularly uh support and uphold bipoc folk so doing facilitation and support with these organizations right now um because they're realizing that uh, the efforts at assimilation and accommodation aren't, aren't it. They need to listen, find out what are the things that we can do that can help to, help to nurture uh, folks in our, in our organizations and maintain and support them. And what do we have to dismantle in order for that to happen and to actually listen to people? Because right now what also is happening is that, um, you know, the racism and the sexism and other things that, are a part of these organizations also are giving, getting a lot, a little bit more license um, because of the current context and people 
um, are needing to push back against that. And so being able to support organizations in that way. Uh, the other thing that I've been doing on a, on a local small level also is um, doing volunteer work and reaching out and working with folks. Um, uh, for example, we have a place called Nor Hendricks, which is a housing for um, indigenous and black folks um, that the city helped to set up. And so doing each week I go there about with food hampers and other things. But the other part of it um, that's uh, sort of a larger, larger issue that's been going on um, for me is that because of um, sort of the nature of the work, I've been helping folks um, with issues in the employment context um, informally here and here and there uh, who are uh, experiencing har harassment and um, other kinds of indignities in the workplace and they need someone to accompany them and support them. What is concerning to me is that I'm only seeing sort of a, a thin layer of that. I have a sense that that's much more pervasive than we understand. And uh, it's, it's tragic also for me, in my mind, that um, there isn't a, sort of a web or a network of of ways of engaging with that because oftentimes when we talk about structural bias and people are doing these investigations around inappropriate behavior or racist, sexist, abusive power, when things like microaggressions, gaslighting, and other issues arise in these contexts, people are ill-equipped to respond to it effectively. Um, and the structures end up defending themselves the people who end up doing investigations are um, reinforcing these practices um, that just further alienate, stigmatize, and push people out. And so, you know, organizations need to move beyond these sort of black squares and actually do the work. No Thank longer you. can we do accommodation and assimilation. We need to actually do transformation, some of the heavy lifting. People need to let go of their concerns about their discomfort and their image and to actually do the, the hard work in these organizations. And so, um, and I know there are a number of folks who are doing this on a regular basis, trying to consult with these groups a lot. And I know you are as well, but that to me is, you know, is the ongoing work because that's happening on the organizational level. That's also happening in communities. You know, people are talking about their experiences of indignities in public spaces you know, and so being able to still respond to anti-Asian racism that's continuing to happen. It's risen something like eight or nine hundred percent. And yeah, that but people gather the data, but then there's not a public response. I wanted to springboard off of what you said, um, because I think what you've taken us back to is organizations and what, what can organizations do? And you've given some examples. I mean, you spoke about the need for advocates inside organizations, right? Or advocates from outside to support folks who are experiencing harassment and discrimination inside organizations. And we know that, 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 that that's, that's just like the trends. We know that black folks, indigenous folks, uh, folks that identify as um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, um, uh, folks with disabilities, these are, the, these are the groups, these are the folks that experience the highest rates of harassment and discrimination inside organizations and the lowest rates of promotion and advancement, right? So um, I just want to give one example about a story to kind of ground some of this work because what's happening out there in the public sphere and what's happening inside organizations is actually linked, okay? So 
lots of organizations started calling us in um, uh, right after George Floyd. And they're like, uh, basically the code was, um, we want to run a whole bunch of, uh, we want to run town hall meetings. We've never done any work. Um, we want to do all these things. We're like, uh, you can't do what you're doing. Um, because they've not done any of the pre-work, right? So some organizations, you do, organizations need to do the pre-work. So here's an example. Um, I've been working with an organization since about 2016. And um, they've been, they embarked on their, um, their, uh, their journey about four or five years ago. Now, what they started with was intensive training and development on um, inclusion, diversity, and equity. And they did it from executive team all the way down to frontline staff. Very intensive, lots of investments. What they discovered through their employee engagement was that they discovered there was a, even though they had high employee engagement, there was a gap between black folks and everyone else in the organization. Okay. And, um, and so they used data to, to disaggregate their results because A, they were using data, right? That's important. You can't know this unless you've actually got data. Um, and so their next step was they were looking for advice. And I was like, go run some focus groups. And, and through focus groups, they got more, more of a report that realized what the problems were. They did a third party um, audit um, of systems and, and they started moving on recommendations made through both the uh, a focus group report and the audit. Okay, so these are all practical steps you can take. So now what they also did was they hired and empowered a director of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now why this was important, because then the George Floyd murder happened uh, and this moment happened out in society. Well, um, the director of EDI, who also happened to be an African-American woman, um, because all this pre-work had been done, started just holding online listening sessions, online sharing sessions with black folks, following um, that and the impact of uh, Breonna Taylor, right? And so now what's happening on society is being reflected inside the organization and it's being processed in a healthy way um, with, 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 and this is where employee resource groups happen. So, so the pre-steps allowed for employee resource groups to, to get developed. Um, the moment was now being addressed healthy. And the last, um, when I connected with the organization, is they were looking, as the first organization that I, uh, I've heard of doing this, they were looking for trauma supports because they had recognized that what's happening around issues of racism and sexism and anti-Asian racism and anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, that these forms that, that actually can be traumatizing for people. So how do we get appropriate mental health supports in place? Okay, so this is just one example of like steps organizations can take. So the outside, the inside world are actually more connected. All right. And it takes incredible leadership to do it. Can I add just in there? Yes. That is they're offering those supports because this is part of what uh, and you probably see this as well. When they are going to offer um, particularly counseling and other trauma support, they need to do things that are culturally specific That's and right. respectful in those contexts, because oftentimes they end up sending in white folks or folks exactly. who are not. Uh, specific exactly. or knowledgeable about what's happening in the same way that you know if a woman is uh, uh, assaulted you don't need to send a man in if, uh, particularly exactly. they've been assaulted by a man to, to, to help them with their issue and so um, yeah the, we need to be respectful and responsive totally. and to break down those barriers anyway I'll let you that's, finish that's really really important and that's what they're doing is that that's the kind of yeah. supports they're seeking that are culturally appropriate I want to leave you folks with like three things that were that are always like the the you know the social change you know three step which is educate mobilize and act we've talked about here educate 
you got to learn to be an, uh, an ally to marginalized communities, whoever those marginalized communities are, also acknowledging your own marginalized identity, right? Um, then it's, it's like reduce the, the stress on the systems by supporting the need for universality, universal basic income, universal access to health and housing and food security and education. All these things actually support the moment we are in and the moment we are trying to challenge and shift to a positive way. On a specific element of like how things are happening in terms of the US and, and the implications of that on other governments is we have to unfortunately learn about the patterns of authoritarianism and how fascism and things like that, neo-fascism are actually creeping up and very present today, which means we've also got to learn about our civil liberties. All right. Um, and as a way to reimagine democracy, which is a big part of the conference we're going to be doing. Mobilize, help people with the basics, the micro things that Parker was talking about, health, food, water, shelter, safety, um, build coalitions, embrace imperfection and reject the purity politics, um, help build community literacy. Also looking at things like democracy, civil liberties, authoritarianism, and then act. Act is a million ways to act. You find what your way is, how you can influence your sphere of influence. So we'd love to just kind of get your thoughts and reflections. What's making you hopeful? What are ideas that, that um, you know, post-election? What are actions you're seeing that are inspiring you? Uh, what are actions you are taking or would like to take yourself? We'd like to just open up the space for your comments. I live in Georgia. And of course, we're at the epicenter of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Our Black women mm -hmm. organizing that's taking place down here in, in my city is amazing, uh, astonishing, hopeful, <laughs> powerful, all mm. that you could want if you want evidence of hope. Mm -hmm. It's not just hope, but it's action wow. that we mm. are taking place. And it's not accidental that, of course, we're being led by Stacey Abram and Nisei Ufot and Malika Redmond. Stacey's getting all the press, but there's like a dozen Black women down there that are kicking ass and, of course. and taking names. And so... <laughs> I'm not sure whether the Democratic Party is ready for us, because if you recall, President Obama had to build his election structure outside of the Democratic Party. That's right. Because of their inherent weaknesses and their, their preference for uh, focusing on alienated white voters instead of dealing with their real base. And so our biggest fear is that Biden will lurch to the right again because he is coming from that democratic centrist place. And they always try to appease their enemies by selling out their base. So we're going to have to really focus on working outside of the democratic structure like Stacey is doing so that we can actually gain and maintain power. That's right. And this, this is what we're doing, but we're feeling very excited. And I have barely slept when I knew every vote that we had raised in Georgia was making a difference for not only America, but for the world. And this is where we are. So I, I think we were talking about um, how can we move forward and bridge the divide. And um, I, was, um, I was a little bit more cynical because I'm really not that positive. Um, um, since Trump got elected, I mean, I found, I found it really traumatizing that people actually yes. voted for him in the first place. That's right. And the fact that he got 70 million vote, uh, votes if if we even if we said forget about the fact that he was racist um where's the humanity in people he's a horrible human being and for him to get 70,000 70 million um votes it's just it's really crazy so um in terms of me going forward um 
there's a lot of different groups, community groups that I'm involved in in terms of activism. And I'm actually um, planning to really exit a lot of those groups because I'm like, where's the hope? Um, so I'm in a trajectory that it's not very positive, you know, right. that lack of hope and cynicism when it comes to um, human beings, despite of the race. I'm just very skeptical of people in general. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really dark place to even have this opinion, but it's really horrible. I do want to offer some hope in the data. And that is, of course, the vast majority of white people voted for Trump. They're the, they comprise the 70 million people. But there's some extra hope in that data. 43% of young voters, white voters, between the age of 18 and 29 voted for Trump. But 56% of young white voters between 18 and 29 voted for Biden. It is those young white people that are rewriting what whiteness means. And we cannot forget them or fail to speak to them or, or, or energizing them if we want whiteness live differently in North America. They got the memo. They're actually have making revolutions in their own homes, in their own families. That's right. And we can't let our woke politics neglect them or rebuff them because of some primitive identity politics. And so I just want to put that out there that uh, we need to be serious about this cleavage among white people. The, the greatest revenge is seizing what your enemy has produced and we've got their kids. We just gotta make sure we don't let them go. Um, I wanted to say thank you for your rawness and your openness. Um, and I have to tell you, I feel like that a lot too. And, um, and uh, I'll tell you the one thing that keeps me kind of going and trying to keep it positive is one, this community, right? And I, th I think it's always about community and it's about not being isolated because we gotta give each other hope, right? We've gotta give each other hope and connection um, at these times that are really difficult. And I, I find that through my community connections and finding places where it feels good and safe to expel and also take in, inhale and exhale, the things that I need. Um, Parker, Judy, anything you want to respond to? I appreciate you saying that out loud in a group. I think it's very brave because it's hard to say when we're all talking about hope and, you know, um, and so I really appreciate that. And I know a lot of people who feel like you feel really traumatized and like I felt that way election night and I'm like a, an incorrigible optimist, but I, on election night, I felt exactly that way. 70 million people voted for this asshole, you know, like it's, it's inconceivable. But since then I've been listening to people who are involved like Loretta and others who, you know, who the other side is happening too, right? And it's more, beautiful than anything we've seen. Like the, I think the uprising of Black Lives Matter, the organizing in Georgia, it's being led by black women and queer people. Um, it, it's unified. It seems to be unified. Loretta can say if it's not. Um, and, and so there's both happening and we can, it's really hard to choose to, to feel the positive because the negative's coming at us from CNN and everywhere else all the time. Um, and so if you're not actually in that positive space, it's hard to look at it and feel it. But I think 
that it is possible to do that. And that's what I've tried to do is to, Mm -hmm. you know, listen to these webinars and so on, where you can get not just not empty hope, but real hope based on the good people who are fighting and fighting to make things better. So Parker. Yeah, no, I, I, I having I must add, I, I just agree. We have to celebrate uh, the wins, the forward movement, but also um, take the time to acknowledge the feelings and, to do the healing and to do the work. Um, cause it's, I mean, I, I certainly have a lot of fear and rage oftentimes around what's happening. Um, and, uh, you know, trying to really connect to, you know, um, love and hope, uh, and the continuing ongoing struggle for liberation and justice, um, keeps me grounded, but I also quite honestly, you know, being a parent of a 16 year old um it's also about what's what we're building and leaving behind and so um and also walking with you know so that's uh that's also uh part of it uh for me as well um langston hughes had a had a poem called uh, mother to son about life for me ain't been no crystal stair but we keep on climbing that's right um, I want to thank Judy uh, Rebek for being here and offering your wisdom and insights. Parker, for you as always, offering just your thoughtfulness and generosity. So thank you, everybody. Take care. Thank you so much for listening today. Our next episode will be available soon.